Hey, this is David Wood, founder of Focus.CEO. If you're wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with rock star podcast host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership is Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. So perhaps the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast-moving world. Welcome to today's episode. Great to have you here with us. I have a wonderful guest with me. His name is David Wood, and he uh, quit his career as a consulting actuary to Fortune 100 companies to create the world's largest coaching business. He now coaches rock star entrepreneurs to double their revenue faster, overcome shiny object syndrome, and be a more extraordinary entrepreneur and human. David, a massive welcome to you. Thanks, Dennis. Pleased to be here. And I like the topic. I love the topic of leadership. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, very cool. Whereabouts are you in the world today? In Boulder, Colorado. Oh, wow. Well, and have you always been from Colorado or are you from somewhere else? I'm from Sydney, Australia. (laughs) I was going to say, because you can tell from your accent as well. And how long have you been in the US for? Oh, man, I came over here in 1990 backpacking because it's it's kind of a law in Australia and New Zealand. When you go traveling, you got to travel for a year. Yep. So I, I did that. And then 93, I got a job transfer to Park Avenue in New, New York. And then I've been back and forth, but I've spent about 15, 20 years in the States. I just keep coming back. It feels like, like home to me. Yeah, very good. And so it feels like home. In what way does it make, you, make it feel like home for you? Well, living here for 20 years will do that. Yep. And I've always been looking for progressive communities. That's the thing. I need a group of conscious people who are exploring what it is to be human. And, you know, I got some of that in Byron Bay, Mm. Australia. Yep. Didn't really find it in Melbourne. I didn't really find it in Sydney. And when I came over to the US, I found some amazing people in New York. And I'm like, wow. And I was introduced to teachers and gurus. And then I got to San Francisco and there's a similar conscious community in San Francisco. And then Boulder was, well, I went to Bali too. Ubud's got a really transformational community, but I have to live somewhere where there are people who are into meditation and yoga and things that our listeners may not have heard of, like tea grouping and circling and authentic relating. That's my jam. Very cool. Ubud and Bali, I, I was there for a, we called it a business school, but I was there for seven days and in Ubud and loved it. What a wonderful place that is. So, um, I don't know, so relaxing, but at the same time, so much energy there as well. Yeah. Mm, very cool. So, David, I read it in your bio that you actually had an accident paragliding. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, well, I've been flying for a long time. In college, there was a hang gliding club, and so for free, you could use their hang gliders. You just had to pay for the training. And I had two accidents as a hang glider pilot, but they were low to the ground, and I didn't didn't really hurt myself. But it put a dent in my courage, I'll tell you. And then years later in Bali, I decided to get into paragliding. There wasn't any hang gliding in Bali. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. But I was very nervous about flying something that can collapse. So your hang glider is not going to collapse. It's a fixed frame. Paragliders collapse. And I, so I just thought, why would you ever do it? But there were reasons, practical reasons to do it in Bali. So I learned how to do it. I had a full collapse at 300 feet above the ocean. And if you collapse at, say, three kilometers above the earth, you're fine. The higher you are, the better, because there's time to reinflate the wing. And if that doesn't work, there's time to throw your reserve chute. But if you collapse at 300 feet, you're likely dead. And so I was plummeting towards the earth and I managed to reinflate the wing at 80 feet above the ocean. And I, I walked away from that one. But then a year or two later, I was in Colombia flying and I'd nearly touched down. I was one foot from the ground on the top of this mountain and a bubble took me, some hot air took me up and back and I didn't control the wing. And so that was a much less dramatic accident. But that one, I actually fractured my spine. I just, I fell from 10 or 15 feet onto my butt. And even though there's an air cushion underneath you, I had a compression fracture of the spine and went to ambulance, went to hospital in an ambulance. And I decided after that, I knew it was not if, but when I had another incident or accident, just a matter of time. And I decided I have to make myself watch accident videos of paragliding. And if after doing that, I'm still willing to do it, I'll become one of the best pilots in the world and be one of the safest pilots in the world. I do acro flying. I'll, I'll learn how to like deliberately collapse the wing and reinflate it. I'll become really, really good or I'll give it up. And I decided after watching those accident videos, I would like to live. I'd like to keep my spinal column intact. I'd like to keep my brain inside my skull. And so I decided to keep my two feet on the ground. And that mm. was a big life decision. Yeah, amazing. So there's a few things that you've said there. One thing that I picked up right at the beginning was you said it put a dent in your courage. Now, for a lot of leaders in life and that we go through things and things happen and their courage gets dented. And we've hit, there's a saying out there, if you fall off the horse, get back on the saddle and go for it. So when you had the first experience, getting back onto up onto the paraglider again for the second experience or to get underway again, what was going through your mind? What was the thing that helped you make the decision to, to get back up there again and, and go for it? Wow. Well, one thing that comes to mind is I tend to lean into my fears. That's my natural orientation. Not everyone's like that. My psychiatrist said to me once, it's like you're almost counterphobic. And I'd never heard that word, but as soon as he said it, I'm like, oh my God, that's my life. If I'm afraid of something, I don't want it to have power over me, so I lean into it. So part of it was like like a stubbornness and I'd worked out why that accident, it's called an incident if you don't hurt yourself. So yep. why that collapse happened in Bali, it was a, an equipment failure. And so I figure, all right, I've got the lesson and I've learned from that. And so that's unlikely to happen again because I'll be really inspecting my equipment and making sure it's all valid. And I loved flying. It, it was something exciting. I think I wanted something exciting in my life. And this gave me something that, that really got my attention. But when you say you get off, fall off the horse, you get back on. No, those aren't the exact steps. You fall off the horse, you reassess why did you fall off the horse, 
is this the horse you should be riding? Should you be riding a horse at all? And if the answer is yes, then do whatever the work is to to get back into it. You might work with a therapist or a coach, or you might just say, all right, I got to confront this. I just worked with a client today who's really hates making videos. And I said, well, particularly in this pandemic, it's a pretty important thing for you to be able to do if you want your message out there. So I'm suggesting you get over this and do a bad video and send it to me and we'll go from there. So sometimes it's just suck it up and move forward. There's a book called, I never read it, but I love the title, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Yep. I would say assess why you're afraid and see if the upside is worth it. And often it is. Often we just, we succumb to our fear and we want to stay comfortable and that's going to lead to a life of regret. So we don't want that. But I'm also not saying just go and step off a mountain in Nepal and go up to 10,000 feet under a storm cloud. You got to look at, is the upside worth it of what I'm going to do? And too often we say, oh, that's scary. I'm not going to ask that woman out or I'm not going to ask that celebrity to endorse my product or I'm not going to go and speak to that group or I won't pitch myself to that that podcast host because I'm small potatoes, like whatever it is, why would we just let feeling awkward and uncomfortable be the reason for us not to go for what we want? Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. That's brilliant. Because the thing is, leaning into my fears, I love that. And also everything else you said, because I think what a lot of leaders do, if I relate this to leaders now and to our listeners, is that what David's just said here, listeners, is the fact that we just tend to sort of get on with things afterwards or if something's happened. But what he's saying here is, no, stop, take stock, reflect, think about things, understand what's going on, learn from it, and then move on from there. But yet again, I love what you said as well. Maybe this is not the right thing for you to be doing. Maybe it should be something else you're doing. Yeah, there's a sweet spot. Mm. There's a sweet spot. See, because for a lot of my life, I'm just like the spiritual warrior. I'm like, nothing is going to stop me. I'm unstoppable. I was scared of abandonment because I lost my little sister when I was seven years old. So I've got issues around abandonment. So I'd explore open relationships and I'd be dating a woman who's dating other men. And it was terrifying. But I'm like, let's go for it. I'm actually scared of heights. <laughs> and I literally was 10,000 feet above sea level over the Himalayas alone in a paraglider. I'm scared of you know crowds. I'm socially awkward. And I'll go and get on stage and I'll deliver a speech. So that's good to have that in your tool bag. It's good to know that you can be unstoppable. What I did is I went too far. I think I went too far with the flying. I think I went too far into open relationships because I was traumatizing my system. It's not good for me. Monogamy is way better for this nervous system. So I learned, okay, it's great to say I'm unstoppable and I'm the spiritual warrior, but I learned humility. I learned that the universe is bigger than me and my nervous system, my body, I do not have full control over. So I have learned hopefully when to push and when to lean into it and when to be terrified and when to say, no, this is too much for me. I just did a film shoot on Monday. I decided to get into acting six months ago. And that's another example of an area that was scary because I'd been dreaming about going to Hollywood for years. I'm like, one day before I die, I'd like to give it a good shot. Well, I finally told someone about it. And you got to be careful what you say. So I, I told someone and she said, oh, I did that. And then a week later, she called me and said, I'm going to audition for this play. Do you want to come? And I'm like, gulp. Okay. But that's a, that was an example of something I wanted to lean into. Like, let's do that. Let's be scared. But then on Monday, I did a film shoot and it was like four, a 14 hour day. 
and I'm, I want to push myself and I want to go for it and I want to be a successful actor, but I'm also realizing that is not good for this body. That is not good for me. I've had, had like anxiety and depression and chronic fatigue for years. So that was brutal and a good example of, okay, that was a good experience. What do you need next time? So now I'm asking directors, I want to know the schedule. I need to know the limits on it because I need to take care of my body as well. And I'm just learning how to find that sweet spot. That's excellent. The sweet spot's brilliant. David, how did you get into leadership? I was into it before I knew I was into it. Hmm. And about two or three years ago, I was considering speaking on leadership. And I, I asked a couple of friends, do I know anything about leadership? Like, I really, I wasn't sure. I thought with all the things I've done in my life, I must know about it, but I didn't know that I knew about it. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know the terminology. So I started diving into leadership and I discovered, oh, wow, wow. back in 1997, when I did the Landmark Forum, they were training, they are training an army of leaders to go out in the world and be cause in the world. And leadership to me is, hey, over there looks way better than over here. Who's with me? That's leadership. And I even did a program called the Self-Expression and Leadership Program. And since then, I've been enrolling people in possibility as a profession. And I realized, oh, wait, I lead people in my coaching sessions. I lead an audience when I'm on stage. I've been running a company for 20 years. Now, I haven't led 2,000 people or 50,000 people. I haven't done that. But it was really cool as I went into the qualities of leadership to go, oh, I've got a lot to say about this. And I actually once sat down and wrote down my nine qualities of leadership. And I'm sure I couldn't remember them all now, but some of them are very present. Here's the thing, Dennis. I think that we all need to lead ourselves. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the first leadership. Yep. And so lead yourself in your self-care. Lead yourself in your emotional growth. Lead yourself in your career development. Lead yourself in your authenticity, your integrity. Lead yourself in the amount of connection you want, in following your dreams. That really takes leadership and discipline. So we're either doing that or we're not, right? We're either showing up as good leaders for ourselves or we're not. Then you just extend it to someone else. And then you start getting into the qualities like enrollment. Can you inspire someone? Can you engender trust with someone? Uh, We'll start getting into charisma and some of those things. Can you collaborate or are you going to be a dictator? Mm -hmm. And I got fascinated as I got into it. I was like, oh, wow, I've been studying leadership for 20 years. I just hadn't been calling it that. There you go. And then the other thing too, I think, David, is just by what you've been doing and speaking on stage and so forth and working with people one-on-one, that impacts so many other people. So there you go. There's, There's so much we can do to impact others as well. And Lead yourself and lead your self-care. Nice. Love that. Now, this person can be alive or can be from history. Who's your favorite leader and why? Yeah, I just, before we hit record, I thought of someone who really impressed me recently. And I only had like, I was only in the room with him for 20 minutes, but I'm going to call him out. He's the executive director of Colorado prisons. So all prisons in Colorado. And his name's Dean Williams. And I was teaching. I was leading a training for prison inmates in leadership 
really. We didn't call it that, but it was leadership, relational leadership. Right. And he came into the room and my, my director had been trying to get him to come and see our stuff for two years. So this was a big deal that he took an hour on his Sunday. He drove an hour on his day off to come and sit in prison and listen to what we had. And I said, oh, no pressure (laughs) as he came into the room. And I did a reveal, which is a great leadership move. I said, I notice I want to say something profound and mind-blowing right now to impress him. But then he sat down and he started speaking and we gave him the floor And what a leader. Like I was sold on him in the first 10 minutes. He started speaking about his vision and he was transparent. He said, I want to turn around this huge ship and I'm getting a lot of resistance. I'm getting a lot of pushback from the old guard. This is not an easy job and I need your help. And he was speaking to each of those women inmates. I need your help. He said, by you learning this training and applying this training in your time here, you are going to cause trouble. You're going to make waves, but it's a good kind of trouble and I want it. And you can't just rely on me to do it. I need you to help. So he really enrolled the whole room. And then he did a a couple more reveals that, that were quite personal. He mentioned a coworker, a female coworker, how there was a moment between them and a moment of celebration and they had a hug. And he just really went into about like what that was like for him as a man and as the boss. And I thought a lot of people particularly in a hierarchy like that, where you've got the top dog executive director, not just the warden of that prison, but in charge of all prisons, speaking to inmates. And he basically kind of got on their level and said, I need your help. And then to share something personal had me trust him more. So I was, so I even sent an email later on to him saying, I'm sold on you and I want to support you in this huge task you've taken on. If you're interested in coaching, let me know. So he'd be my latest favorite leader because of how he showed up in that room. Brilliant how he was vulnerable, but you know, I mean, that's massive. And also to enlist them to actually help him move his leadership team and, and help his leaders. Wow. That's, that's huge. Yep. He was vulnerable and yet he didn't collapse. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So this is a distinction that I think could be super useful for our listeners interested in being an amazing leader. And this is the distinction between, it's called the humility dignity spectrum. And I was missing this until three years ago. And it's amazing. So if you think of the spectrum of where you can be as a human, dignity is a place to stand, which says my voice matters. You don't have to follow me, but my voice matters and I need to be heard. That's dignity. And that's a power position as a leader. And figure from history, we often think about Martin Luther King. I have a dream, Mm -hmm. right? Hear me out. Then at the other end of the spectrum, if there's a piece of paper, I imagine dignity on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side of the paper is humility. Humility is a place to stand that says all voices matter. I'm here to listen. And that's also a very powerful position and a figure from history. We sometimes talk about Mother Teresa. I'm here to listen. I may not say much, but you can lead from that position too. Then in the middle, you've got a nice balance. That's also a power position. All of these are power positions. That's equanimity or composure where, yes, my voice needs to be heard and I'm going to listen to everything you've got to say. And Gandhi seems to be a nice figure from history where had a voice, listen to my vision, and I'm going to listen to everybody. Now, there are two positions you do not want to be at on this spectrum. If we go past 
dignity. On the right, we go past my voice matters into the shadow of dignity. These are not power positions. We need to know what these are so you can catch yourself and go, oh, that's where I was in that meeting. And in the shadow of dignity might be things like arrogance, I know everything, domination, dictatorship, railroading, shaming people. And I would say whether or not you support Trump, I think a lot of people would not see him as a real humble listener. I think a lot of us could agree that he tends to go in the shadow of dignity a lot. Whether or not that's right or wrong, there's a lot of, I'm right, you're wrong. It's very clear to see. I'm not comparing him to this next person, just another person that's often considered in the shadow of dignity, Hitler. Now, on the other, you might get some some emails about this. On the other end of the spectrum, in the shadow of humility, if you go too far past humble, you can over-apologize. You can collapse. You can be victim where people need, they feel like they need to support you. You shame yourself. Guilt. You're feeling guilt. Like I felt guilty yesterday because I told my dog it's okay to jump out of the car. She was still clipped into the restraint. So she's like hanging. And I imagine it was a terrifying experience for her. I felt so much guilt. Mm -hmm. That's the shadow of humility. There's no real value to that. I apologized. I said, look, I'm going to try and make sure that never happens again. But I was in the shadow of humility. So there's the humility, dignity spectrum as a leader Find where you are normally. Are you too much in the listening and you're not speaking up? Okay, move back towards the center with some dignity and speaking up. Are you constantly speaking and not checking in with your staff to say, how does that land for you? What do you think? Do you have everything you need? If you disagreed with me, do you feel safe enough to tell me? Like these are ways you could move towards humility. Yep. So I love this. I just love this tool. Thank you so much for sharing it because I think it's beautiful in the way you've shared it and also the context that you've given us, the examples of different leaders. And there are so many leaders that we could look at versus the both sides and where they're at at any one time. I mean, I think for listeners, it's understanding, as you said, where you are at any one time and then adjust and then move from there rather than being stuck where, where you are. And yeah, so I think there is, there's so much to be shared there. So good. Thank you for sharing it. I think it's really, really cool. And I love what you say. All voices matter. Yeah, you're welcome. And look, hopefully, listeners, you'll find when you're not speaking up, you'll feel it in your body like as an integrity issue. And this is what I got out of the landmark course, the SELP or the Self-Expression and Leadership Program. Feel it as off. I coached a client yesterday and he said he thinks what he's, he doesn't really have a clear mandate to direct the people under him. He has it on paper, but he's been more like a buddy and collaborative. So he doesn't really have a clear mandate to say, hey, no, you have to let the person go. I'm making the call. Yep. And I said, is that okay with you? Like, are you okay to watch it happen, watch it fold out and see the damage that you think is going to happen to the company? Is that okay with you? If it is, okay, pick your battles. But it seemed like it wasn't. So it was an integrity issue. And what he needed was more dignity to speak up and say, hey, I need to have another round on this. I'm going to try and enroll you in my way of thinking so that you're on board. But at the end of the day, if that doesn't happen, I'm going to make the call and I need you to back it as if it's your own. Now that's composure. You're basically listening. You're wanting to enroll. You're wanting to get on side, but you're taking a leadership position and saying, this is actually my call and I'm going to do it. I need you on board. Is that, are you good with that? And another quick example, I noticed yesterday I was feeling unhappy with an experience I had with a doctor. Took three weeks to get the appointment, had the appointment. The doctor said, all right, I'll do an email with the test we're going to do. Went on vacation for two weeks. Oh, 
never got the email. I realized I'm not happy with that. And here I am not speaking up. So I was, I'm in the, I guess I was in the shadow of humility. I was like, I'd already said, Hey, I'm looking for the email. And they said, sorry, she's not back for two weeks. We apologize. But I needed to say more. I needed them to know the impact of it and that I felt let down and I needed to make a request. So that was me moving from the shadow of humility back towards dignity. Now I'm not being overbearing. I'm not insisting on anything. That doesn't feel right for me. I just needed my voice to be heard. So there's a little micro example. And hopefully, listeners, you'll feel it in you like, wait a minute, I need to speak up on this. People don't have to do what I say, but I need to be heard. Yep. David, I think that the reason I had the tumor that I told you about before was because my voice wasn't being heard and I wanted to have something and and then a result of that, right? And so one of the reasons for doing this podcast is to have that voice being heard, but also having my guests' voice being heard and helping our listeners create those skills and capabilities to be able to have their voice being heard as well. And hence why I started it. Yeah, I love that. Self-expression is such a high value for me. Just be you in the world. Can you be more of you in the world? And that takes some skill. It takes some art. But I'm writing a book about it right now called Mouse in the Room because the elephant is not alone. We need to spot these other animals in the room and name them so that we can be seen and heard. In fact, in that email that I sent today to the doctor, I said, this is in service of me feeling seen and heard. So they understood why I was doing it. I wasn't trying to make anyone feel bad. It was just like, this is, that's a value in and of itself. Just be seen and heard. Life gets better. Generally, life gets better. That's cool. Very, 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 very cool. The the show, as we said before, leadership is changing. That's the, the title of the show. When we talk about the title or that saying, or what does it mean to you? What comes up for me, and I read I read your question in the in the pre interview stuff. You know, the classic thing, and this might even be cliche by now, is that leadership used to look like someone who had all the answers. I think that was more an authoritarian style of leadership, and I think my understanding is that it's been moving more and more to a more collaborative style and a less hierarchical style. And the best leaders today might be the ones who don't have the answers, but they have the right questions. And so I love the phrase, be a kingmaker, not a king. I love it. That's how I think it's, that's one way. I I have another way, but I'll stop to see if you want to say anything about that. I like it. Be a kingmaker, not be the king. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. And also love what you just said there. That's, that's really, really important here, listeners. Leadership used to look like someone who had all the answers, but it's not actually that. It's actually not having the answers, but actually having the right questions or being able, having the ability to ask quality questions. And I, and I, Dave, what I say is that the quality of your life, your business, and everything you do comes down to the quality questions you ask. And I think there's a lot of leaders who don't know how to ask those questions, or there are people in life, in business, that make statements. And if you look below that statement, there's no substance. But leaders aren't, or people aren't asking questions to go, well, actually, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a hard transition for some people. And I've coached quite a few executives now. I decided to get into it to see what that was like. So I coached some VPs at Warner Brothers and Salesforce. And the thing that got them promoted was that they were a rock star. They were a hero. They were able to like get shit done and they probably did it themselves. So then they get promoted and it's like, well, look, you did well at that. So now help these other hundred people or or 10 people or a thousand people 
to shine. And it's like, wait a minute, I need a whole new skill set now. I need to ask questions. I need to be collaborative. I need to ask people, what do you think your targets should be this year? And then this month, bring them to me. We'll, we'll work them out. We'll, we'll pick something that's a stretch for you. So I think for people who are used to, and I'm one of them, I love having the answer. I love, I was always that kid in class. I love having the answer. So it's, it's a constant challenge for me in coaching to not give my opinion or the answer. And I don't always succeed at it. And to, I'll flip it back and say, what do you think? Like my client today said, I don't know what's next this week. And I said, well, if you did know, what would it be? Or what's one thing that has to happen very soon? And then she, then she was like, oh, oh, okay. And then between us, we managed to come up with it. But yeah, that's a big transition. And the second thing that I think is that I hope is changing about leadership, and I think Brene Brown is a strong influence in this, is showing that vulnerability is a strength. So instead of, and I've been on this warpath for, or warpath is the wrong, I've been beating this drum for 20 something years, ever since I did the Landmark Forum and I saw a forum leader get up on stage and on the third day of training us, he said, I'm terrified of people. And firstly, I was like, wow, you've chosen this as a profession and you do this out of service, even though you're terrified of people. So it blew me away. But secondly, I was like, wait a minute, you can say that? You can say that to a room full of people? My whole life I've been hiding stuff like that, not even admitting it to myself. So for 20 so since then I've been constantly telling on myself. I tell about anxiety and and depression. I talk about using substances like sugar and TV and video games and and cannabis and alcohol to try and change my state and feel up. I try and tell on myself as much as possible and ideally from a place of dignity and not shame and guilt and collapse so that other people can get that it's okay to be how you are. And a classic example, and I think this is from Brene Brown, you're not going to go to a boardroom as the CEO and say, we're running off a cliff. I'm freaking out. We're going under. We've got no plan. You're not going to do that. You do that with your coach. You do that with your close friends, with your therapist. And then you go to the board and with dignity might be something like, some of you may be scared in this current climate. I wouldn't blame you. Sometimes I am too. We don't have all the answers yet, but we are working on a plan and together we will find our way through, right? So you find your way back to dignity. So I hope and think that that's a transition that's happening, that people are being more real as leaders. They're sharing more so that people can be more connected with them and trust them and go, oh, you're a real person. Yeah, no, great. I think that's so strong what you're sharing there. Listeners, I hope you're taking lots of notes. If not, hit rewind and, and make sure you're taking this in. It's really good. Now, David, we're in a fast-paced, ever-changing world. And what makes a leader successful today in that kind of world? What do you think it is? Okay, what's coming up in this moment is, one, you need to know where you're going. So you need to have a vision. Hey, or, or you can co-create it. With your team, that's fine. You don't, you don't have to generate it yourself, but you have to be clear on where you're going. Two, you have to believe it's possible. If you don't actually think it can be done, you've got some work to do because who's going to follow you <laughs> off that cliff if you don't think there's a, there's a soft landing? And then three, we need to enroll others in that vision. Over there is better than over here. Who's with me? That's the essence of enrollment. 
And who knows what they need to be inspired? Who knows? Maybe they need to see the grander scheme. Maybe they need to see the ripple effect of who you're going to impact. Maybe they need to see that they can be excellent at this and that's their highest value. I don't know what what it's going to be, but you need to find a way to get other people on board so that they want to do it, even if you disappeared. In fact, in the self-expression and leadership program, you have to create a project and then you have to enroll a leader to take over from you. So if you can get people enrolled such that if you didn't show up or if you were sick for two weeks, they would keep going, then I'd say your job's 90% done. That'd be great to be able to do that. Very, very cool. And then just a couple more things that are popping into my head. I once heard a speech from a UN weapons inspector and it really stuck with me when he said, anything worth doing is worth inspecting. And so I think there has to be accountability. So people have to know where they're going. Each person should have their targets. And then someone has to be tracking it. Someone has to know if that's not met or if they're behind or whatever. Someone has to know. It's a bit much to expect people to be completely 100% self-driven and you'll just find out at the end of the year if they did it. That's a lot to ask for. And I used to kind of be in fantasy land thinking, oh, that could work. But anything worth doing is worth inspecting. So someone has to know if it's not happening and someone has to see and call it out when it's going well, or even if it was a really good try and it didn't happen. And so acknowledgement, like I know, I know money's important, but I don't know if it's more important than feeling seen and validated and valued and acknowledged. So that has to happen. And each of these things that I've just mentioned can be systematized. You can build systems in. You can build it into your weekly meetings. When I do my group coaching calls for my Samurai program for business owners, I'll start with, what are we celebrating? And if even if everyone's got to go, even if it's like I showed up to this call or I got out of bed, you're going to celebrate something. So you can build the systems in and reporting. You don't want to chase up people all the time. That's disempowering. I don't think that's dignity. I don't think it's humility. So what I often get my clients to do is set up reporting structures. When do you want a report from someone and set it up? So there's only an issue if you don't get the report. So you're not constantly like, wait, are you on track for that? Are you are you doing well? Are you behind? You need help? You can systematize all of this stuff. Very good. David, we've been talking about leaders from that lens. If we change lenses now and talk about from an employee's lens, how has employees' expectations of leaders changed? I don't know. I'm not talking to a lot of employees. I haven't done a study on it. So I I read that question. I thought, I don't know the answer. What I suspect the expectation is, is that we'll be more seen and heard and valued. I think that's what people are wanting. And actually, that's that's a shift that I see happening in society. Minorities that never had a voice before. There are more and more minorities now that are being heard. And now we have a value in society. Like if you're not listening to my, a minority, you're a bad person. So that's shifting. More and more people are getting a voice. And so my suspicion and my hope is that that's happening more within organizations that people expect not to just to be a cog, not just to be grateful that I have a job, but no self-respect. Someone's going to see me, acknowledge me when I do a good job, hopefully collaborate with me and not just be what I imagine were jerk bosses back in the 50s of like, I didn't ask for your opinion. I asked for this done. It's late. 
I want on my desk tomorrow or you're fired. Like, I just imagine that's a very old paradigm. I'm sure there are pockets of it, but I can't speak authoritatively on this. This is more my suspicion because I don't have the stats on it. Well, I think you're right. I think I think it's spot on. And when you and I are hearing this, we're, we're hearing in the world over the last three years, four years, it's getting louder and louder. People want their voices heard. That That's that's what's happening a lot of uh, around the world. So we are, we are seeing that. And I hope employers are wanting their leaders to be more real. I don't know a lot of like really top CEOs, but I was, I was kind of zooming with a friend of mine working for Square and this guy just popped into the zoom in the background and just gave a wave and a young guy. And, and as he walked away, my friend said, you know who that is, right? I said, I said, no, he said, that's the CEO of what was it? Square. And what's the other one? Twitter or Facebook? No, not Facebook. I forget his name even, but it was like this guy who's CEO of two huge companies, which I didn't even know you could do. I didn't know that was a thing, but he was doing that. And yet here he is just waving in the zoom background, being casual. And, and I, and I know he's taken out my buddy to, to dinner and just, just had a chat. So I love, like I'm enrolled in him. I don't even know him. I haven't even spoken to him, but he seems like there's an approachability. You know, he doesn't have the walls up. I am better than you. I'm the big boss. It's like, no, we've got a job to do, but let's do it together. I hope that's part of what people are wanting more and expecting more now, because I think it's a good direction for our world. Yeah, that's good. Leadership approachability. That's nice. Hey, um, David, the question I got here, which is the last question here, which is if I get you to get your crystal ball out, where, where do you see leadership being in five years? I just want to say his name because I looked him up. Jack Dorsey looks like looks like that. Who I was, That's who I was just talking about. Where do I see leadership being in five years? Where I see the world being in five years. And it, I'd like a chance to plug my book a little bit because this is why I'm writing it. More transparency. We've got this thing called identity management on Facebook and social media. We post the shiny stuff, right? It makes sense. You don't necessarily want to go and post, I ate three tubs of ice cream tonight and I feel bloated and I'm ashamed of myself. You don't often see that. You see, like I'd post, I just booked a commercial for next Wednesday. Woohoo! You know, it's going to be, it's going to be exciting. I'm talking to someone about playing one of the three stooges in a film. Like, this is very exciting. That's the kind of stuff we tend to do. And so everyone sees that and we see the models and we see the movie stars and we get all this idea of how life's going to be. And it makes me sad. So the book is about knowing yourself, realizing your own, we call, I call them mice. It might be a feeling you had. Oh, I feel let down by this doctor. I felt insulted when you said that at the meeting last week. And I, I wonder if we can talk about it. I'm two minutes late for this interview and I apologize. I feel embarrassed. I didn't say that. That was a mouse for me. I felt embarrassed about showing up two minutes late. The more we can spot our own mice and identify them and then artfully name them, then we can be known to the other person. And this is an absolute leadership quality. You have to be able to call out what's happening. If you're running a room and the energy's slumping, you don't name it, you're losing that room. That's a mouse. So mouse in the room is all about naming it. And so in five years, I see the world being closer together because we're practicing more transparency. And it's the same for leadership. Leaders will be more transparent, more real, share their desires, share their their concerns, hopefully a lot more acknowledgement. We should be taught this in kindergarten to acknowledge someone. Hey, when you said that, I felt so good about myself. And what I think I get about you is that you're a very perceptive person. That's an example. 
at Landmark, they teach you how to actually acknowledge someone and it's a missing skill. So I'd like to see more of that in, over the next five years. Brilliant. Thank you. David, thank you for joining us on today's show. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go? Is there a website, a LinkedIn profile? Yeah. Yeah, I created a memorable link that'll take you to a hidden page on my website. There are a couple of downloads. You can get a couple of videos from me each week. I have my own podcast, Extraordinary Focus, that you can subscribe to. You can also, if you're interested in Mouse in the Room, there'll be a link, or you can just go to mouseintheroom.com, but there'll be a link of how you can contribute to the campaign and get involved. And if you want a session with me, if something you've heard today has you think, I could go further and faster in life and business with coaching and possibly with David, there'll be a link there too, where I'm calling it a double your revenue audit because most of the people who come to me want to make more money. So I call it what they want to hear, but don't be fooled. I'll ask a lot of probing questions about your life because that's really what I care about. And all of those things you can check out at myfocusgift.com because what you fo- what you focus on is what you create. So I figured myfocusgift.com will take you straight to that page and you can play in my world at whatever level feels right for you. That's cool. We'll have that in the show notes. David, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dennis. Cool. Hey, listeners, if you haven't already checked out the Facebook group or the LinkedIn page, Leadership is Changing, we would love to see you there. Thanks for joining us. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Look out for the episodes as they're being released. Download them, have a listen, put a review and a rating. Feel free to share them with your friends, your family, and your network. Hey, if there's any feedback you'd like to give me about the show, or if there's a question you have for the Ask Dennis Freestyle episode, then send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, it's always a pleasure being with you. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.